name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today's Thomas Sunday is what it's called, obviously because we just read about Thomas. And Thomas is a was one of my favorite figures in the in the Gospels because of his honesty. Um, he's called the twin or Didymus. Didymus is what he's called in the Greek, but Didymus just means the twin. And some people think it's because he looked like the Lord, and so they used to call him the twin um, because of his physical resemblance to to Christ. This is just a tradition; it's not a point of uh, of doctrine. And we have expressions today in our culture of saying, "Don't be a doubting Thomas," right? Of saying it as though as though it's negative. When to me, actually, Thomas is is one of the most real people. Um, in the Gospels, and not just here, not in this Gospel that we read, but every single interaction that's recorded, and there's not many, there's only two or three, Thomas's character is very consistent. For example, we last heard about him on Lazarus Saturday, right, when after the Lord tells them, you know, we're going to go to Bethany, and, and Lazarus is is sick, is he's sleeping, and the disciples thought he's, like, well, if he's sleeping, <laughs> he'll wake up, he'll get better. And then, and then we read, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Right? He's like, like, are we for real? Like, this is not, uh, like, he, he's not able to contain his real feelings about what's going to happen. He's like, well, obviously, like, like in modern English, we're, we're going to get shot. Right? It's like the equivalent expression. This is what... What Thomas is saying is, if I go, I'm, I'm going to get killed. And then the other time uh, where we hear from his personality, and it's always John, actually, who tells us about him. Our Lord is speaking to the disciples, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know where I am going. Right? And our Lord is often speaking very figuratively. And Thomas's response is, Lord, we don't know where you are going. <laughs> how, can we, how can we know the way? So he doesn't even pretend. He's not like, mm-hmm, like many of us do in the sermon or during talks, right? And just nod and, and let it go. He's like, no, actually, we don't. We don't understand what you're saying. So Thomas is never able to just pretend. He's always very real about his situation. And our Lord always answers him, right? Because our Lord answers him and gives him... Um, an answer to those things. So Thomas is expressing something um, that was in all of them. And actually, I'd like to hear, I'm just going to read you something brief of what Origen, Master Origen says about um, Thomas. He says, Thomas seems to have had some precision and carefulness about him, which is shown also by what he said in, in this gospel. He most likely did not believe those who said they had seen the Lord. It could have been an apparition like what happened in Matthew Chapter 9, when our Lord tells them, don't believe everyone who says that it's Christ because it could be someone deceiving you. I think this was the feeling of the other apostles too, but especially of Thomas. That the other apostles had some such thought on seeing Jesus as clear from their being written. They supposed it was an apparition. And he answered and said to them, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have bones and flesh as you see me having. So he's saying that even Thomas had the, the boldness to express what others were thinking, right? Because in the first apparition of the disciples, they're just staring, right? Until Christ says, you can, you can touch, you can, you can know that I'm, that I'm real. And what's important for us to see here is that it's actually not 
wrong to doubt. Many times people get very afraid if they have doubt um, and think they've committed some grave sin, right? If they have doubts about things, when really there's nothing wrong with having doubt. There's nothing wrong with having questions, right? There's nothing wrong with saying to our God, there's some things that don't make sense to me, right? That, that in and of itself is not something that isn't wrong. But Thomas wasn't doubting for the sake of doubting, right? This is what's very different, I think, from our modern culture and, and, and what Thomas was doing. Nor was he closed to hearing the truth, right? He wasn't doubting and just saying, I've decided this makes no sense, so see you all later, right? Is that he's expressing something real while actually expecting and waiting for an answer. So it's a doubt with faith, right? A doubt with, with goodwill that he's going to receive the truth. He was being genuine in his search for the truth, and rightfully so, right? Because apostle means sent, right? The apostles are being sent out to preach. How could he preach something he does not know or believe to be true with complete conviction, right? It would make no sense. If he was going to go out to preach and tell them, well, the other disciples told me that he wrote, I didn't really see it, but I'm going to take their word for it. That even our Lord condescended to this, right? And said, no, I, I will show you, right? He makes a special visitation for Thomas, right? He had already come, right? And he comes and repeats the whole scenario just for the sake of Thomas to get exactly what it was that he was looking for. Um, he didn't only want to see in case it was an apparition, he wanted to touch, right? So that he could say, no, 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 no. We've seen illusions. We've seen all sorts of stuff. So not only do I want to see him, right? I want to touch him. Right? I want to be completely sure that this is indeed the risen Lord. And when we take this methodology, the Lord stoops to our level and responds. He comes to our, our feeble understanding um, in order to satisfy the unbelieving mind. But what did this truth do to Thomas? Last year we talked about dealing with doubt, so I don't want to go, I don't want to rehash all of that again. But what did this truth do with Thomas? His response was not to say, oh, that's cool, right? Like, so I got what I was looking for, see you all later. That was a nice uh, ending to my doubt. Instead, actually, it meant for him the beginning of very hard work. Some traditions tell us that Thomas was actually a skilled worker, a skilled woodworker, actually, more specifically, um, and that he was good at building things. And so the tradition says that an Indian ruler of some rank came to Jerusalem looking for a skilled worker to build him a palace, um, and Thomas took it as his opportunity to go preach in India. Whether or not this was how or why he went, is, that's just tradition. We know that he ended up in India, um, but this is one of the stories about how he got there. And Thomas preached to the people there. He was thrown in prison at one point, and then he even, while in prison, healed the person, healed the brother of the person who got him put in prison. Right? Like this is, this is the, the change that comes in them through the Holy Spirit. Not much else is, is really known other than that they eventually killed him there. And the same person who had doubted right, was now willing to die for that very thing he doubted. Which means that his faith was not, not based on just hearsay. Because not many people would be willing to die for something that they know to be a lie. And we're talking about eyewitnesses here. right? We're not talking about second and third generations, or I don't know how many hundred generations later us, right? But that they 
were eyewitnesses, right? Because if he knew that the Lord wasn't risen, he had really absolutely no reason um, to die, right? It would have been much easier for him to be like, it was a good run, right? Jesus was a good guy, but he's gone, right? This is over. But because he witnessed it, and only because he witnessed it, was he willing to say, no, I'm ready to have my life laid down and to be out of my comfort zone completely in India, which I'm sure for a Jew is probably a completely different, uh, like complete culture shock, but he was willing to die for it. But it's not just Thomas. In that room was also Peter, right? And Peter denied Christ and needed a personal encounter just like Thomas did. This morning we read the gospel of them fishing, right? And our Lord has a meal with them. The continuation of that chapter, right, is Peter's personal encounter after the resurrection to deal with his doubts, right? Because his doubt was not one of, I don't believe that Christ could, could rise. His was a doubt of, I don't think that the Lord could accept me because I denied him three times. So within the context of a group, he felt comfortable on some level to be able to talk, right? But in his heart, was a real obstacle, which was, I denied him. I swore I didn't know him three times. And because of this, right, our Lord pulls him aside for his need, right? He makes a personal manifestation of himself to Peter as the forgiver of sins. And he asks Peter three times, Simon Bar-Jonas, right, his name before he was called to be an apostle, do you love me, right? And he asks him three times as if to say, for every time you denied, I'm giving you your opportunity to confess your love. That I'm, I'm not holding anything against you. So just like you denied me three times, you have actually instead made three affirmations of love. You made three affirmations of loyalty and gives him that personal obstacle, um, a resolution. And Peter likewise learned to be merciful, right? Peter, Peter is... He's still brash after his resurrection encounter, right? But he he changes a lot, right? The same Peter who who was very obstinate with, with our Lord, right? And, and still was, again, arguably after, was willing to preach to Cornelius, right? Who was, who was a pagan, right? Which is something that Peter really, really struggles to, to accept. And we also know that Peter likewise eventually was murdered for the faith, he was murdered for for confessing that the Lord, the risen Lord, was indeed real, right? Which is what we'll be fasting for a long time for um, shortly. And there are other people, right? If we look at other people's encounters with, with Christ, their encounters with truth, and we're going to come to this for a reason. We have Longinus, right? The soldier who pierced the side of Christ. He had witnessed the death of the Lord, right? So he, to him, the death of the Lord was probably the most real thing. And so if he had not also witnessed the risen Lord, would that same person who had, who should have been the one testifying of like, no, he was really dead, right? I know I, I was the one actually who put the spear in his side. Had he not witnessed also the resurrection of the Lord, would he himself also have ended up both a bishop and a martyr? Longinus ended up converting, became a bishop, and was also eventually martyred. Then there's Cornelius, right, that we just brought up. Cornelius was a Gentile, so he had even less reason, right, to be interested in the Lord because here was this cult out of Judea, right, this small group that are, are calling themselves Christians from a group they already despised, which were the Jews, right? The Jews were a thorn in the side of the Romans. 
So there was a, like a double negative here going on from Cornelius's perspective. And yet his genuineness in seeking truth and seeking the Lord had God revealed to him, go ask for this guy named Peter, right? And then God also, just like he did with Peter, just like he did with Thomas, goes out of his way, right, to give a special manifestation for Cornelius because he does two things. One is he pre, he preps Peter, right, for the mission and says, I'm telling you to do something you don't like. I don't care that you don't like it um, because I'm telling you what the right thing is, right? And Peter still argues. That's what I'm saying. He didn't completely lose his, his brashness, right? But God is like, I, I really don't care. You're going, right? And then to prove it even more, he made a special manifestation and that he gave them the Holy Spirit out of order, right? Typically, you'd get baptized and the Spirit would come down. Here we see the Spirit come down and he's like, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do. Um, so we're going to baptize you guys still. Right, which was God saying, no, I am God, I do what I want, and yes, I have chosen these people, and your thinking is wrong. Right, That my doors are not open only to the Jews, my doors are now open to absolutely everybody who calls after me. And Cornelius became the first non-Jew to receive the Holy Spirit, him and, the, and his household, but also he became a bishop. Cornelius became, um, there's controversy over whether, because they're in a similar area, he was the first bishop of Caesarea, which is where St. Basil was bishop, or of a, of a town called um, uh, sepsis with a C, not the disease. And Cornelius himself also died as a martyr, right? This is somebody who ended up confessing the faith and dying. And if we go further in history, we see people like St. Clement of Alexandria, right? Who is not an eyewitness, but the scriptures for him were enough for a perfect repudiation of his pagan background. He was a pagan. He had, in fact, already rejected paganism, right? This is why I'm saying the Lord looks for those who are seeking the truth, but was trying to figure out what's, what's real and what's not. And he went through all of Greece, um, learning from some very famous people, trying to learn where, where is the truth, what can he come to, until he arrived in Alexandria and learned from Master Pantanus, uh, one of the first deans of the School of Alexandria, um, who taught him the truth of the resurrection, and then somebody who had become very cynical towards religion, became one of the most prolific writers on doctrine at a time where not many people were writing at all. Then you have someone like the great Saint Antony, right, who his encounter with the truth was enough to say, well, if we're not being martyred in the flesh anymore, if we're not being killed for it, I will give up my life in the, in the way that I can, right, by following Christ to where I am. Everybody's got this personal um, encounter. Or St. Moses the Black, right, who was actively also seeking the truth, so that he would look at the sun, right, and say, are you, are you God, right? Like anyone out there, like, I'm right here, answer me, I want to know, right? And again, arguably he had no reason to, he was a rapist, a murderer, um, people were petrified of him. Um, there's legends that he, like, one time to get revenge at a family that, that he had wronged, he swam across the Nile with a sword in his mouth just to go um, and, and take care of the family that had wronged him. So as far as he concerned, he's, he's a demigod, right? And that he did not need anything he could do whatever he wanted. But even he, in his searching for God, God responded to him, right? And, and showed him through the most simple of means, right? Through these monks who are the opposite of everything he stands for, right? Showed him the truth of himself and had him taught. So what about today, right? If these are all ancient people, say we have the 21 martyrs of Libya, right? 
they were so convicted by the truth of their Lord that they were willing to not only die for the Lord, but to also be tortured, right? We know that they were that they were tortured. In fact, I don't know, know the name of your politicians, all of them, the vice president, but there was um, a lecture that he was giving um, about the state of Christianity in the Middle East that Emma Sabin was in attendance at, and he said, he goes, you know, at first we thought this was a terroristic attack, and then when we looked and we investigated into it, we found out that this was something far bigger than that, and that these were people who refused to give up their faith. This was not a terror attack. This was a group of people that were being actively pressured physically to renounce their faith and refused. And he was like, you have no idea how moved we were. And, and instead of being a political talk, it turned into a sermon. But this is this was how moving their witness was of how compelled they were by the truth of the gospel. And we also have someone like Father Lazarus, right, El Antoni, from the Monastery of St. Anthony in the Red Sea. If you haven't heard of him, then get on YouTube and, 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 and look him up um, and see him. Father Lazarus, I've had the honor of knowing since I was 17, um, was a philosophy professor in a modern world, a voracious atheist who had absolute contempt for religion, but the deepest and, 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 and hardest contempt specifically towards Christ, um, where he used to say, if I were to become a believer of any kind, it definitely would not be Christianity. Um, he's like, their God is a wimp. Um, he's like, what, what is this where, where the God dies and tells people not to do things? He's like, I'd rather take the God who does things, um, the one that's more violent, the one that, that suits my carnal needs over anything like this. But like Thomas, he gave room for truth, right? He left himself something open in spite of his bias, and the Lord responded very strongly, right? So the same kind of miracles that were happening in that first century happened even with him, that he even had the mother of God walk out of an icon, right, and embrace him, right? This is not obviously an everyday occurrence for most of us, but our Lord, again, condescended to his need, right, for the sake of his honesty and sincerity in seeking the truth. Today he lives in a cave, Right, the same guy that had a very fast motorcycle, which he laments, um, lives in a in a cave, right, and travels by foot or by <laughs> microbus, in a culture that he really cannot stand, and he prays the very rituals that he deemed mockworthy um, before, and I would say is even addicted to them. He's not able to not pray; it drives him crazy to not pray or have liturgy. And he became one of the master teachers of prayer, right, and and somebody who's who is master to pray without ceasing, when that was something he himself mocked, of saying, who are you talking to? And yet now that's, that's his thing. And some of the gifts he once thought were purely psychological, right, or, or fantastical, he has either received himself or has witnessed, right? This is the conversion, this is the transformation that occurs. In other words, he changed because of the truth. So then what is this truth? In fact, it's the answer that the Lord give, gave to Thomas when we quoted him early saying, no, we don't know where you're going. And our Lord responds to him and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's the Lord. But you need to ask yourself if you believe, right? You need to ask yourself if you have had an encounter at all with God. In the beginning of our faith, we get instructed by our parents and through sermons 
but we're supposed to be learning to live something real, right? It's not, it's not just a, a cultural thing. Are we living that? Do we seek the truth? Do we want to know Him? Because if the answer is yes, then I need to ask, what am I doing to find that truth? And does that truth change me? Because if it didn't, something's not right. If you believe that Jesus is God, there must be a transformation of purpose, of person. Right? This is why we read in the Pauline earlier today, you are supposed to put away the old self which belongs to your former way of life, since it becomes ever more corrupt after the loss of deceit. And you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self when the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. He's saying that th there's a change. There's something that's supposed to change. And in fact, he actively is saying, bring your mind into this. Right? He said there's supposed to be a renewing of your mind. Right? That this is not just a bunch of, of, of acts, of rituals. Right? Is that your mind needs to be activated in this. If it's true, then we can't stay the same. Or at least if we stay the same, then we need to recognize that it's nonsense to stay the same if I'm not able to do it. If I didn't know that I'm sick because of what I'm eating, then I have some excuse. But if someone tells me, oh, the reason why you're sick is because you're eating this thing that you're allergic to, right? The truth should bring about change, right? This, this knowledge should be like, oh, okay, well, now that I know that this is why, well, then I obviously ought to stop eating this thing that makes me sick. It should be that straightforward, that simple, right? Or if I'm, not unable, if I'm unable to, right, to stop eating that thing that's sick, at least I have to recognize that I'm doing something wrong, right, that at least there should be something convicting me, making me realize something is not right. The truth frames for me the purpose and objective of my being, right? It gives me my identity. He has made us to be his sons and daughters. We are dignified in rank. We are kings and queens, princes and princesses. Sounds cheesy, but it's the truth. Um, we actually really are, right? And if I know that I have a station, an office, a calling, I need to change. Look at how upset people are not to, to be political at the president who is accused, regardless of our stances, of not acting according to the dignity of his position, right? This is, so it's a real thing. Culturally, people actually complain about such a thing. How many of us live according to the dignity of our rank as sons and daughters of Christ? How many of us really generally conduct ourselves the way that you would expect a son or daughter of God to conduct him or herself? If I believe that he is the truth, then how can I cuss or gossip? If I believe that he is truth, how can I justify my judging of others? If I believe that he is truth, how can I justify my anger or my wrath against people? If I believe that he is truth, how do I justify not teaching my children about him or how to communicate with him? There are many consequences to a belief that he is the truth, right? These are a few of them, but they are many. And this is why we have the gospel as our constitution. In fact, St. John takes this even further. Anyone who claims to be in the light, which is Christ, the way, the truth, and the light, and hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no occasion for stumbling in such a person. But whoever hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness... Such a person does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's what we read in the Catholic epistle today. He says that someone who has been illumined to the truth but is not changed is either misinformed in the darkness or elsewhere, he says, even worse, he's a liar. Right? He says that anyone who says they love God and doesn't love his neighbor, that person is a liar. 
Because how can you say you love God whom you have not seen while you hate the neighbor that you do see? There's no way that those things are consistent. He brings it to that level of saying, if your truth is genuine, it is impossible for you to make such a claim. A Christian, if he believes, becomes conformed to the gospel, and it's just simply that simple. And ignorance is not okay. Since we are God's offspring, we read today, we should not think that the divinity is like gold, silver, or stone engraved by human art and imagination. Like This is not a secular thing. This is not ritualistic in our language. The, the pagans, it was the gold, the silver, the objects that they called sacred. For us, it often becomes the rituals and the practices. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands that all people everywhere should repent. Repent means change, change your mind. Because he appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he, was orda- he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him up from the dead. Right? So he's saying that God tolerated our paganism. Right? God tolerated our, our, our ignorance right? until the fullness of time where he manifested himself once and for all very publicly as to who he is. Right? And made his resurrection very public and the miracles of it very public so that there be no excuse anymore for our ignorance. We know who we are. And if we don't, then like Thomas, seek to know, ask. The early church has testified of it that all the believers were changed. Their unity was astounding and regular people, regular everyday people, were laughing at death. Regular people, not just, not just clergy and, and, and holy monks and nuns, were casting out demons, healing the sick, and prophesying. The Lord gave gifts according to the need of the whole community. These things still exist to those who believe, to those who seek Him, and who, like Thomas, ask Him for Himself. If we do ask in faith and with sincerity of heart, then the same God of Thomas, who is our God, will reveal Himself to us, such that we, like Thomas, may cry out, saying, My Lord and my God, glory be to our God forever and ever, and to the ages of all ages. Amen. We want to thank you so much for listening to St. Basil's podcast. We hope that you have gained spiritually from our remarkable speakers, and we appreciate your support towards this podcast. St. Basil American Coptic Orthodox Church is looking to purchase a home, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. We are looking to raise funds towards this novel mission, Orthodoxy in an American Context within the San Diego area. You may donate online through our website, www.stbasil.net that's www.stbasil.net or click on the link below when it will take you to our donations page you may also mail in your contribution at the address located on our website we thank you for any contribution and may our lord jesus christ always bless your heart and home